Hello, I'm Dr. David Rubin, uh, Archstone Professor of Geriatrics at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. And I'm here with uh, Dr. Subhashan Pereira, who is a professor of medicine and biostatistics uh, in the Division of Geriatric Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Pereira, can you tell me a bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. My areas of uh, expertise are biostatistics, clinical trials, and research methodology. And in the past, my focus has been in research involving mainly older adults. Many of them are living with multiple chronic conditions. A biostatistician's uh, role in this environment is fairly broad, not confined to data analysis at the completion of a research study. We are all involved from the very beginning in formulating hypotheses, key design decisions, finding ways to conduct the study within feasibility and resource constraints, randomization, communications with regulatory entities such as DSMBs, and of course data analysis and interpretation and preparing findings for publication. Thank you very much. Uh, in my personal research, I live by, by a statistician, so they're most valuable players indeed. To begin, can you tell us what clustering is, why it is important to consider, and what are the main characteristics of a randomized clinical trial that makes it a cluster randomized trial? Sure. Clustering occurs when individuals from a certain group tend to be more similar to each other compared to individuals from a different group, usually due to reasons that are not fully and readily measurable. For example, we can think of a cluster as older patients of a geriatrician due to a range of factors, perhaps the physician's training, whether the physician follows a conservative or aggressive strategy. Due to a range of factors, the outcomes among the geriatrician's patients tend to be more similar compared to patients of another geriatrician. This similarity is called clustering. Sometimes we also say patients are nested within the geriatrician. Clustering is important to consider because it has many important implications. For example, most statistical methods assume independence among observations. This is violated by clustering or similarity of individuals within the same cluster. They are, in some sense, dependent on the care received by the geriatrician. If you ignore this clustering, during trial planning, then that can lead to overestimating of the statistical sensitivity and underestimating of sample size requirements. And that would increase the likelihood of concluding treatments are similar when they are in fact different. So on the other hand, if you ignore clustering during trial data analysis, that can lead to underestimating the amount of noise in the data in practical terms that would increase the likelihood of concluding treatments are different when there is insufficient evidence to say they're different. The main characteristic of a cluster randomized trial is that whole clusters rather than individual patients are randomized to treatments. But the outcomes are collected at the individual level, despite the randomization at the cluster level. And the outcomes are analyzed at the individual level while accounting for clustering. In the previous example, you can imagine geriatricians being randomized to treatment practices rather than individual patients, but outcomes being collected from individual patients and analyzed. 
This makes so much sense uh, because there's a certain culture among a practice. There are certain resources that are available for a practice. There are customs in which workflow and, and other things that that make physicians or, or other providers who are in the same practice or in the same group perform very similarly. So this is a very helpful clarification. When do we uh, commonly um, see cluster randomized trials conducted? As a general rule, we typically see cluster randomized trials in some organized setting. It may be a place where older adults reside or receive care and services. We already mentioned the cluster of patients of a geriatrician. Other examples, uh, which are more residential in nature, are nursing homes, assisted and independent living facilities, and senior apartment complexes. It doesn't have to be a residential setting. So, for example, patrons attending a senior community center or an adult daycare center can also be considered a cluster. Also, let me add that cluster randomized trials generally tend to be large and more pragmatic. They also tend to examine health systems or quality control interventions or implementation strategies. Especially in the case of implementation strategies, we commonly see step-wedged designs where you would roll out a certain implementation strategy across facilities or practices they also tend to be cluster randomized trials. So you spoke a little bit about reasons why there's a need for cluster randomized trials, but what are some of the advantages and statistical disadvantages of conducting these? I think there are three main reasons for conducting a cluster randomized trial. One is to preserve internal validity, mainly by preventing cross-contamination between the treatment groups. For example, think about a trial examining the impact of a more extensive physical examination of patients in chronic low back pain. If individual patients are randomized, a physician cannot perform the extensive evaluation for one patient and not the next patient simply because the second patient is not randomized to the intervention group. It is unlikely that the physician would be able to do that without carrying over some of the concerns that he or she expressed towards the first patient. So it makes more sense to randomize all patients of a physician to one intervention in that scenario. A second reason is that some interventions are naturally designed to be delivered to groups rather than individuals. For example, if you can imagine a group exercise program trial conducted in an independent living facility. That's more conveniently conducted as a cluster randomized trial because of the nature of the intervention. Perhaps a third advantage is a cluster randomized trial may mitigate participant disappointment. We want to avoid that if possible because that can result in participants dropping out, which can bias the result. For example, you can imagine someone might be disappointed about being randomized to the control group, and they may be more likely to drop out of the trial, especially if they see someone near to them being assigned to the active intervention perceived as more beneficial. So those are some of the the advantages. There are statistical disadvantages to conducting a cluster randomized trial despite these advantages. 
So one of the first considerations is whether a cluster randomized trial is actually needed and whether any of the, the advantages can be realized. If not, the, the disadvantages outweigh the advantages. For example, a trial of a, a medication, a pill, where everyone involved can be effectively blinded uh, with a placebo. Uh, that may not be a suitable uh, place for a cluster randomized design. Given that a cluster randomized trial is needed, the main statistical disadvantage is the need for a greater number of participants compared to an individually randomized study. Another disadvantage is that statistical analysis of the data is more complex. Yeah, I think this, those are all really good points. Uh, one of the things just to reiterate is the whole idea of contamination where people in a trial are getting both interventions uh, because um, their doctors can't uh, differentiate or whoever's administering the intervention can't differentiate between one intervention versus another. They, they get a little bit of both. So that contamination issue is, is very important as well. So how is the extent of clustering and its influence on uh, the methodological aspects of a trial assessed? The extent of clustering is quantified with what we call the intra-class correlation coefficient, or ICC for short. Uh, it is basically like any other correlation. It's a number between 0 and 1, and it indicates how large the between cluster variation is in an outcome relative to total variation. So the larger the number, the greater the extent of clustering. In planning a study, sample size requirement is first assessed ignoring clustering, assuming that it's an individually randomized study. It's common to have a certain level of statistical power to detect a certain magnitude effect under an anticipated participant retention rate. So that's a standard computation and usually compute the sample size requirement ignoring clustering. Next, what we do is the computed sample size requirement is inflated by what we call is a design factor. And this design factor depends on intra-class correlation, average cluster size, and variability in cluster size. Cluster size data is usually readily available because you know in which clusters that you will conduct the study. But the intra-class correlation for this computation has to come from a previous multi-cluster study. That also means that it has to come from, some, from a somewhat larger prior study rather than a small pilot study. And what we find is that even seemingly small values of intra-class correlation, say 0.05, can make a substantial difference in the sample size requirement and statistical power. After you are done with the study, when you're analyzing the data, statistical methods that can accommodate clustering and non-independence of individuals have to be used. Commonly used techniques include the mixed models, shared frailty survival models, and generalized estimating equations models, and there are others. It is very important to publish intra-class correlations from a cluster randomized trial so that others can use them for rigorously planning any subsequent studies. So uh, just to summarize, the uh, 
effect of the interclass correlation, the higher it is, the effect on the sample size needed would be? Yes, everything else being equal, the design factor which you should inflate the sample size is greater with the greater interclass correlation. Yeah, so the, the higher the interclass correlation, the larger sample size you would need given the design factors were equal. Is that correct? Th that is correct. And uh, also uh, a little bit of a nuance, uh, in our prior work uh, we have found uh, objectively measured outcomes tend to have smaller uh, intra-class correlations compared to self-reported measures of mood and, and, and so on. And that, that makes sense because uh, uh, participant interaction affects subjectively collected self-report types of outcomes more than objectively measured outcomes. So what other randomizations, ethical uh, or operational issues need to be considered when uh, conducting a cluster randomized trial? Yeah, there are several uh, other considerations. For example, regarding randomization, in a large individually randomized trial, simple random assignment almost always works to balance out the two treatment groups, characteristics at baseline. But in a cluster randomized trial, even with a large number of participants, remember the, what's being randomized are clusters. So the number of clusters being randomized can be small. And that increases the chance of an imbalance at baseline between the treatment groups. So a randomization scheme in a cluster randomized trial should really be stratified by important cluster characteristics for the study. Regarding ethical considerations, it's important to note that a scientifically flawed trial cannot be ethical. So it is even more important to ensure sufficient attention is paid to the methodological complexities that, that we just talked about. Also, conducting a cluster randomized trial by itself is not a justifiable reason for not obtaining informed consent from individuals. Uh, in fact, the opposite might be true in older adults with chronic conditions. So, for example, in a nursing home cluster randomized trial, informed consent is needed not only from individual residents or, or their representatives, but also cluster gatekeepers, such as facility administrators or state regulatory authorities. Regarding operations, there are some uh, difficulties as well to maintain the same level of operational rigor compared to an individually randomized trial. It is difficult to keep individual participants and cluster gatekeepers blinded when you deliver an intervention to the whole cluster. Also, it may not be possible to complete all baseline assessments before randomization, as is usually done in the individual randomized trial. This is because some planning ahead needs to happen and scheduling to deliver a cluster level intervention. Well, we're, we're getting close to the, our time, but I'd like to ask you if you could summarize, what would your take-home message or messages uh, about uh, cluster randomized trials, what would they be? In summary, I would like to reiterate that several important and unique issues must be considered when planning and conducting a randomized trial. And also the same is true when consuming the findings of a cluster randomized trial and critically evaluating the results of one that you might read in the literature. 
I think the most important issue is the justification and rationale for a cluster randomized design. Given there is a reasonable justification, it is important that clusters are chosen appropriately and clustering is incorporated into study planning and data analysis. And also careful attention should be paid to ethical and operational challenges involved with conducting a cluster randomized trial. These considerations are more formally compiled in several sets of published guidelines and checklists. One is the consolidated standards of reporting of trials or consort statement. And another one is the Ottawa statement on ethical conduct of cluster randomized trials. They can serve as convenient references for, for best practices. So one of the things sometimes people say, and I just wanted to hear your response to them, what it would be is they, they say that the cluster randomized trials aren't as strong evidence as a individually randomized trial. What would, you, what would you say back to them? I think it depends on the purpose of conducting the trial. So for an initial investigation, that may be true because a small trial realistically cannot be a cluster randomized trial, and an initial trial may be a feasibility or efficacy trial, and it's probably more important to not go too far towards the pragmatic end of the, the spectrum, and uh, also because of the size of the study, it can be con conducted under more controlled conditions. But uh, larger, more definitive studies, we would like them to be as realistic as possible compared to real-world scenarios, and we would like to have those studies conducted so they have internal validity and external validity. And when you get to that point, I think cluster randomized trials are almost uh, necessary for the reasons that we mentioned. Well, that was a very clear explanation. Thank you for sharing your thoughts and for developing uh, this module. And thanks, everybody, for being patient listeners. And um, please look forward to actually completing the module. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me.